1: Being fearless as Christians, next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. You know, we can approach a gate with timidity, gently knock and stand and wait, or we can storm it, just blow right through it. As Christians, that's what we've been called to do here in Luke chapter 9. Welcome to the program. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're in Luke chapter 9 taking a look at the gates of hell that will not prevail against you and I who are emboldened by the Holy Spirit to go and preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It's an encouraging look this marvelous passage before us. Join us for this edition of Abounding Grace. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner.
0: About a year ago, I gave a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith to a friend, and he recently told me how much he got out of reading it and how it cleared up so many questions that he had had for many years. So, beloved, don't be afraid to tell people what your confession of faith is. People are beginning to realize the bankruptcy of so much of what goes on under the name of Christian today in our churches and in many of our bookstores. They may be ready to hear the real truth from you. And besides, we have Jesus' promise that as we proclaim and bear witness to and explain and live out our confession of faith, which is Christianity in its purest expression, Jesus will build a church in our society that will triumph over all evil influences and will always, always be a sanctuary when we and our our descendants can find clarity of vision hope for the future, peace for the present, forgiveness and understanding of the past and abundant life in Jesus Christ. And so I ask you as intensely as I can, what are you doing, beloved? I praise God for many of our members who are fearlessly and righteously standing for Christ and the gospel in extraordinary ways. Influencing people in ways beyond what you would imagine. And I do earnestly pray for those who may not be doing anything directly in confessing their faith to the world and doing their part in building and expanding the church. But I ask those, why are you doing nothing now? Search your hearts. Is it because you have nothing in your heart to confess? Is it because you might be embarrassed if your friends knew the content of the faith you confess to believe? Is it because you have other pressing things that you consider a greater priority for your time and energy, like fulfilling your material wants, enjoying the benefits of your labor and entertainment, striving to succeed and get ahead in this world? And in their place, there's nothing wrong with those things. But they should not be your priority. Or is it because you want to assimilate yourself as much as your conscience will allow into this culture? And direct witnessing, confessing, admonishing, exhorting, pressing the truth, counseling urging people to leave their false confession and accept ours because ours is biblical, turns off those you want to be identified with. When Jesus makes such a great promise and we're still not confessing our faith to our children and our friends and our co-workers and our acquaintances, I simply ask you, why? Jeremiah said he couldn't help He couldn't help but witness and preach and confess. He could not keep silent because he said the truth was shot up in him like fire in his bones. And he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Remember what Peter said? I'm under compulsion for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. The truth consumed him, beloved. He had to confess his faith. Zeal for the house of the Lord ate him up just as it did Jesus. Men and boys, I ask you a question. Have you ever considered whether or not God has called you to be a preacher of the gospel or a missionary or an elder? Have you ever prayed, Lord, if you want me to be a minister of the gospel or a missionary or an elder, I am willing and I am ready. Call on me if that is your will. Have you parents ever prayed for your children? Oh God, if it is your will, I pray that you would raise up my sons to carry the gospel to the world and my my daughters to marry preachers and give birth to more preachers and missionaries. Have you ever prayed like that? Why not? you say, well, it just never occurred to me. Or is it really because you're afraid God might answer your prayers? Is it because you don't want to be a preacher or go to a foreign land and be a missionary or even be an elder? And you don't want it for your children either? Or for them to marry preachers? Because you know if they do, they will not always be accepted by others around them. And may never be able to afford and enjoy the pleasures of this world that you have devoted your life to? Let me take it up a notch. What are you doing, and how are you confessing your faith to your friends and your family to build up Reformed Heritage Church? Are you witnessing to people and trying to bring them to church with you? Why not? Is it because you'd be embarrassed if your friends knew what you believe? Is it because there is no real commitment to this church in your heart? Is it because you have let your love for Christ grow cold? Is it because you think there are too many hypocrites in the church? Or perhaps people you think are a bit strange simply because they're not like you and maybe unlike you. They're doing are like you. They are doing nothing to build Christ's church. Beloved, my daily and most earnest prayer is that God would move us all to repent of our negligence, that we would renew our love for Him to white heat. That would we, would give us that He would give us resolve and perseverance in what He has called us to do, and that He would place in us a burden for the lost and the confused and the misguided and the untaught that will move us to confess our faith boldly with a prayer that God would use us to build upon the rock of Christ and His Word here at Reformed Heritage Church and then become a beacon of faith and life and righteousness and love to your specific city, to the Silicon Valley, to California, the U.S. and the world. Now notice the rest of Jesus' statement. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it, or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One of the transitional moments in my life came when I was brought to an understanding of this one statement. Listen to how many of our brothers and sisters interpret this passage. They believe that upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, is teaching that we are all in this mighty fortress called the church, and we're all hiding behind the walls, surrounded on all sides by our enemies. And every now and then, we get brave and we throw out a few hand grenades, hoping that a few of the issues that are out there in the public that we disagree with will be demolished before they wipe us out. Because, you see, we're the church defeated. But our passage says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. It's not that the gates are attacking the church, it's that the gates of hell are under attack and will not stand against the church. You see, Jesus is painting us a picture here. And the picture is not of the church on defense under attack from the gates of hell, trying desperately to survive. It's a picture of the church on the offense, attacking the gates of hell, that are desperately trying to survive the onslaught of us. And to no avail. The church will not be overpowered by the gates of hell, beloved. The gates of hell will be overpowered by the church. Now notice the picture. It's a metaphor. Or as Joe Moorcraft would say, a metaphor. (laughs) Hell in the Bible is a place of death and destruction and satanic power. Gates, of course, stand for a type of entrance. The words overpower and prevail signify victory or conquest. The picture that Jesus is drawing is of a mighty army, his church under his leadership, waging an offensive war against and attacking the fortress of death and destruction, which is under the leadership of Satan, and try as it may, that fortress is unable to defend itself and resist the powers of the armies of the church, which overpower hell's forces, break down its walls, win the victory over it, destroys the fortress of destruction, and sets it captives free. That's The picture here, beloved, you can't paint it any other way. The simple little but exhilarating picture that Jesus paints with these words upon the rock, this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, requires most Christians today to develop a completely different mindset or worldview from the one that they've been taught from most pulpits in this country. The present mindset of most Christians is basically that of a circle of covered wagons being attacked by Indians. Our enemies are attacking us from all sides while we fight them to death trying to hold them off as we fight a totally defensive war that we can't even possibly win. Why battle? This attitude of the defensiveness and pessimism that controls so many Christians today stifles initiative, It stifles creativity, perseverance, and hope. It produces in Christians a sense of helplessness against what they are led to believe are such powerful and massive enemies entrenched in all facets of our culture so that Christians feign to say, what's the use? Why hold to such a strict standard? The answers in the Bible are so radical, so impossible in a culture like ours in which we are such a minuscule minority. After all, the world and many of our brothers and sisters don't want to hear real biblical solutions. It's just a waste of effort and resources, they say, to continue the attack. So let's just take another strategy. One of compromise that makes our confession of faith easier to swallow. With less confrontation and less demands, let's become a part of mainstream America and not be so extreme or unreasonable in our efforts and in our positions. After all, aren't we all tired of being on the battlefield? And especially when we have no hope of victory? So let's work on being less critical less direct, and more like all the other evangelical churches that are drawing large crowd where everyone seems to be happy and respected, not viewed as arrogant and extreme or as bigots. Let's get our church to look like every other conservative evangelical church, and then maybe someday, off in the future, we can be a little more direct than we can now. After all, there's no hope of winning, So let's just make it easier to fellowship with others and live a little more peaceable in this society, and maybe then our churches will attract more people, as if growth is our goal. Now, how should we respond to this popular mindset that I'm sure most of you have heard in one form or another? Well, first of all, this reminds me of the frog in the pot of water, who does Nothing to try and resolve his situation as the heat continues to be turned up. He puts off jumping out of the pot until it's too late, and as you know, he's boiled to death. The situation was uncomfortable for him, but it didn't seem all that bad. He probably wasn't even aware of his precarious situation. Why? Because as the situation gradually worsened, he simply compromised until it was too late. Second, the mainstream in the 21st century of America is almost entirely rebellious against God. And what Jesus said 2,000 years ago keeps coming to my mind. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it, For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it and beloved Main Street America is on the broad way that leads to destruction as well as much of what calls itself Christianity today. This mindset also contradicts the picture that Jesus painted us in Matthew 16 about the triumph of the church over the forces of evil. Victory does, in fact, belong to the inflexible, faithful people of God. The power we have to overcome evil in our culture, beloved, is far greater than the power that this culture has to overcome us. In fact, 1 John 4 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Acts 1 8 says, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and all Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So if we are getting pushed back, if it appears as if we're being defeated, it's not because we don't have adequate power, my friends. It is because we're not using the awesome power of the Spirit of God and the truth of God that Christ has already placed in our hands. What if the apostles and the early Christians had this same pessimistic and defeatist defeatist mindset in the first century? What if the first Christians had said this? There is only a few thousand of us Christians and the Roman Empire controls the world. It has no intention of changing itself to conform to the Bible. In fact, it's killing off us by the hundreds for being religious extremists and fanatics. So let's come part of the mainstream of Roman culture. And then, maybe in the future, when it's a little safer, we can do something or the other. Beloved, if they had had such a mindset then, Christianity would have died out in the early days of the church and it would have deserved to die. But praise the Lord. The early church did not have such a defeatist mindset. Christians back then were willing to be fed to the lions rather than compromise or even relax the claims they made on that culture or change the goal their champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, had made for them, which was the conquest of the Roman Empire with the gospel. They were martyred simply because they refused to be a part of the mainstream that lived for their government-provided bread and circuses. And what happened? In spite of the size and the power and the resistance to Christ by the Roman Empire... This insignificant minority of Christians persevered in the radical work of changing the world with the simple gospel. Until on October 28, 300 AD, the emperor of the Roman Empire, Constantine, was converted to Christ. And early in the next year, 313, Christianity was legalized and given full freedom and became the most powerful religion in the Roman Empire, all because they did not live like the main stream. Then about a hundred years later, because the empire didn't preserve and following Christ in the Bible, God finally brought about the destruction of Rome by the Visigoths in the mid-fifth century. And Rome was virtually wiped from the scene. But... The church continued to grow in numbers and continued to grow in influence all over the world for the next 1,500 years. You know, we need more men in the church such as Athanasius. Athanasius was one of those early Christians in the Roman Empire. He stood against a most popular heretic by the name of Arius, who preached that Jesus was not fully God. And yet his teachings were winning the day in the church all over the Roman Empire. And as Athanasius stood against Arius, he was persecuted, ridiculed, defrocked from the ministry, and imprisoned more than once, and then placed in exile. His friends, of course, were concerned about him. And they said, Athanasius, you must make your preaching and your attacks on Arius a little milder, and a little less in your face, because the whole world is against you. To which Athanasius boldly and humbly responded, Then I am against the world. Brothers, dare you live and stand like this against the mainstream? Or are you too worried about your career, your salary, your reputation, your financial future? It is men like Athanasius, whom God uses to secure the future of the church, even when they are despised. A little side story, because I love the story of the demise of Arius. He was famous, and every time he would go into a town to preach, large crowds would receive him like a conquering hero. Well, one time it was announced that Arius was to preach in a certain town, And when the elders of the church heard about this, they got together and earnestly prayed that God would keep Arius from affecting the local citizens with his heresy. Arius, who was old by now, comes into the town and the crowds come out to meet him, throwing flowers in his path, thinking that this is a great man. As he enters the town, he has to step out for just a moment to relieve himself. But he took more Time then seemed reasonable to some, so a few men went to look for him, and there they found him, drowned in his own vomit, an answer to the prayers of the elders by the living God. What will it take for Reformed heritage to be a church against which the gates of hell will not prevail? It will take men and boys and women and girls who are not afraid to stand alone in unity against the world, against the threats of our culture and the compromises of other churches who are willing to say, we will not be influenced by our culture any longer. We will not desire the goals and the practices and passions of compromising Christian churches. Our ears will be deaf to the ridicule and unjust criticism and with humility toward God, love for man and for God's truth, devotion to Christ, and boldness in the face of death. We will stand and go forward with the truth of the gospel until this modern Roman empire falls in worship before the feet of our Lord and Savior. We are willing with Martin Luther to let goods and kindred go, if necessary, and to stand for Christ and confront our society with his gospel. And we know with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ will use our persevering inflexible faithfulness to him and his word to beat down the gates of hell and establish his kingdom.
1: Eight six You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, Post Mailbox, 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road,